Matthew chapter 22, our text for this morning is verses 1 through 14, and here's God's word for us today. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Pray with me, please. Lord God, help us this day to see you, your truth, in your word. Just as we sang as a prayer, show us Christ, reveal your glory, change our lives. And in so many ways, Lord, this morning, uh, our salvation is front and center. This is incredibly significant. Help us get it right to be sure that we're under your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Matthew is a book that tells us the gospel, the good news in the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would it surprise you if I told you that we started looking at the gospel according to Matthew during the Christmas season of 2015? <laughs> we have taken a couple of breaks along the way. It hasn't just taken us that long. In the early chapters of the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We see that especially in chapters 1 through 4. Jesus is the true Son of God, and He's also the right descendant of Abraham, Israel, David. Jesus is beloved by God the Father and hated by the devil. And he authoritatively taught the principles of the kingdom of God and the word of God. And he showed the people around him that the present religious system of that day was empty of much of what the Lord had commanded people to do and to be. And Jesus demonstrated that the kingdom of God had come when he arrived on earth because Jesus was healing the sick and raising the dead and conquering demons and controlling nature. 
And Jesus gathered to himself a band of 12 disciples to join him as he ministered. He, he taught those disciples. He trained them. He sent them out on their very first mission trip. And he warned the disciples that as they would go out and preach, there would be a divide. There would be a polarization. There would be a strong separation between those who desire to follow the Lord and those who oppose God. And Jesus even warned the disciples about hardships and persecutions that were far in the future. Well, during his ministry, Jesus preached, and he preached that people should repent of their sin, and they should believe in him to be saved. And many people did. But many of the religious upper class, the Sadducees and the priests, they hated Jesus because Jesus threatened their power base. And the Pharisees, the religious blue-collar, they hated Jesus because he preached with authority and he rejected their traditions. And those two groups, the upper class and the blue-collar class, they found themselves having a common cause because they could gather together to oppose Jesus and try to bring him to an end. Well, after about three and a half years of ministry, Jesus then very intentionally walked to the city of Jerusalem during the week of the Jewish Passover feast. And there Jesus was going to continue to preach even as he starts walking very directly toward his actual goal, the cross. Because as, what, as we will find out as we study the final chapters of Matthew, Jesus came not only to preach the kingdom, not only to demonstrate the power and the love of God, Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for the sins of God's children. So today we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 22. We haven't been here since the end of April. And we're in the middle of what is called the Passion Week. This is the final week that leads up to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the timeline of the Passion Week has probably gone like this so far. On Sunday, Jesus formally entered the city of Jerusalem and declared himself to be the very King and Savior God had promised, the Christ. Many people rejoiced and praised Jesus. Remember that whole Hosanna and waving the palm branches thing? But many of the religious leaders of that day were not super happy about this arrival of Jesus. Now on Monday of that week, as a teaching illustration, Jesus pronounced a curse on a fig tree. Because the nation of Israel was like that fig tree. They should have been fruitful. They should have been a repentant people, but they weren't. And then Jesus strode into the temple and he forcefully drove out the money changers and the animal sellers. He clearly demonstrated there that Israel had not repented of her sin. She had not put away her sin. She was not ready as a nation to receive the king that God was sending. It was a majorly dark day in human history. On Tuesday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the disciples were shocked because the cursed fig tree had withered overnight. And then Jesus taught in the temple. And the Jewish leaders came up and they challenged Jesus about, who gives you the authority to say this stuff? And Jesus showed that those religious leaders were dishonest people. They wouldn't answer an honest question themselves. And then Jesus begins a set of three parables. In the first parable, it was the parable of the two sons. Jesus said that Israel was a people who honored God with their lips, 
but their heart was far from him. They didn't follow through with their commitment to God. Because if you remember, the story is a man has two sons. He says to them, go work in the field. And one son says, I'm not going to do that. But then he does. One son says, sure, dad, I'll go. And then won't go into the field. And Jesus said, Israel's like the disobedient son. They won't obey the commands of God, even though they say with their lips that they want to. The second parable is the parable of the vineyard. And there Jesus said that Israel's like an evil group of tenants who rented the use of a vineyard, but who wouldn't pay the master, the owner of the land, what was owed. And they attack and they murder the master's servants and even the master's son. And now Israel, like those tenants in that parable, are in for the judgment that is due them because of their evil against their Lord. That was the first two. This morning, nearly six months later, we pick up parable number three. I didn't put the chapter breaks in there. Somebody else did. We have the third parable in the set, and it is fully in keeping with everything that we saw. Israel as a people are disobedient to their Lord. Israel as a people had not prepared themselves and were not ready for the arrival of the Messiah. The leaders of the nation were refusing to believe in and surrender to Jesus, and the Lord is not going to tolerate it. Now, remember this, a parable is a story that uses simple, understandable, earthly concepts to present to people a deep spiritual meaning. Now, not everybody gets the meaning of the parable. Some people are not at all going to see it. But the, but the idea, the story is not hard to grasp. Oftentimes in parables, there are going to be very dramatic circumstances. You'll see those really strange plot twists that come and they get your attention and they drive the point home. So be ready for that as we study. Now, let's do this. Let's go back to the passage and let's make sure that we understand the story as Jesus tells it. Plot twist and all. Then, at the end, we'll go back and find three very simple points that we can apply, hopefully, to our lives, to the glory of God. Fair enough? Yes. All right. Start at verse 1. Jesus says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, third time, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to get to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So here's the parable that opens up, and Jesus tells us what it's about. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And the picture that Jesus is going to use here to describe the kingdom of heaven is that there's a king who's throwing a huge party, a wedding feast for his son. This is going to be quite the bash. Because you see, back in Jesus' day, people knew how to throw a party. When somebody got married back then, guests would come and hang around for an entire week. Did you hear me? I read something this last week where a person said, you know what, when I was a teenager, I used to sneak out of the house to go to parties. Now I sneak out of parties to go to my house. <laughs> so I don't know that a week-long party appeals to me, but, but you know what, this would have been worth it back then. This was a joy. For that whole week, these people would celebrate. They had the best food, they had the best wine, they had joyful dancing. It was beautiful. 
Now, the fact that this party is being thrown by the king in the story tells you something about it, though, doesn't it? What do you think of when you think of a, a party thrown by a king? What kind of party is it going to be? It's going to be pretty awesome, isn't it? It is going to be lavish. It is going to be the most amazing, most extravagant, most generous party that could be held. The party favorites will be very nice. And those who are invited to this party, I mean, if you got in your mail the invitation to the king's party, you'd be like the people dancing around singing, I've got a golden ticket in Willy Wonka. This is a good day. I've got an invitation from the ruler of the land to his house for a week-long bash. And oh, did I mention the king is paying all the expenses. All you've got to do is show up and eat, and the party is on for at least a week. Much like our potluck that's coming after the service. Just, just uh, not a week long. we got to be out by 2.30 or something like that. So. Now, the way that you would get people in those days to come to a big bash was you would send out two actual invitations. The first one was an invitation that said, hey, there's a party coming up that I want you to come to. And maybe they'd say, you know what, we're going to have it sometime around early November. Keep your calendar clear the first week or so in November. But there wouldn't be an exact day and time to arrive. But later, once the host had everything together, he would send out a second invitation that says, hey guys, you know you're supposed to come. Guess what? It is tomorrow night, 6.30, my house. Let's go. Come on, let's celebrate together. That's the picture, right? And so Jesus has a king throwing a party and it looks and feels really beautiful and normal and everybody can understand it. But when the second invitation, the day and time invitation goes out to the guests, the people do something incredibly stupid. They refuse to come. Now remember, whose party is this? This is the king's party. If you get invited to the king's party, you want to go. It's a high honor to go to the king's party. But to refuse to go to the king's party? Y'all, that's a good way to insult the king and get yourself into some serious trouble. I mean, that at best is bad networking. But that's exactly what happened. The people refused to show up when they were summoned by the king's messenger. So then comes verses 4 through 6. Again, this is a surprise by the way, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Killed them. The king could have been furious at the people who didn't come to the party at the very beginning. He could have, if he'd wanted to, sent soldiers to go out and kill the people. He could have sent soldiers to go out and arrest the people when he found out they didn't do what he told them to do. He is, after all, 
the king. But the king in Jesus' parable is almost unbelievably gracious. Instead of crushing the people for delaying his party, he sends out another set of messengers. And these guys carry the message. Hey, maybe you missed the first one. Maybe you didn't get my text. It's time for the king's son's wedding feast. We've got the meat cooking. We cooked some good food. The best food in the land is here. It's been smoking in the barbecue pit all afternoon. So come on, let's have a party together. And astoundingly, I mean seriously, shockingly, they still don't obey the summer. Instead, they insult and they do harm to some of the king's servants. Some of the people even murder some of the king's servants. Can you imagine the audacity? I mean, doesn't this strike you as good night? The, the king is inviting people. And instead of you going and getting the, the benefits of the grace of the king, you decide to attack and murder the messengers. That's treason. That's the ultimate insult to the king. Even though the king had extended gracious offer after gracious offer, even though the king had mercifully invited the people, not just once, but twice, they attacked the king's servants and turned their back on their ruler. What do you think the king is going to do? Let me ask you, just be honest, what would you do if you were the king? Verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Tell you what the king did in Jesus' story. The king decided that enough was enough. The king sent in the troops, and he destroyed all of the people who were rebelling against him. If they were going to reject him as their ruler and his kindness, if they were going to attack his servants, the king was very justly going to put those wicked subjects to death. But what about the party? Verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads. And invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Hey, guess what? The king's son's still getting married. That hasn't changed. No rebels are changing that. Party's still going to happen. There need to be guests there. The king is a kind king. He's a giving king. The king wants to show his kindness to guests. He wants to be that kind of king. So the king sends the servants into the streets. They go out to the crossroads and they invite anybody they see, whether the people were good people, whether they were bad people, whether they were high society people or of the poorer classes. This king opens the banquet to anybody. So the banquet hall gets filled up. Maybe it wasn't filled with the nasty folks who were supposed to come at the beginning, but you know what? The hall was filled by a great crowd of people, and they were able to really enjoy the king's generosity. Now, it is nearly unthinkable 
unthinkable to imagine people being rebellious like the others were to a kind king, but many were. But at this point, now that we're past the rebel and the rebel side of the story is out of the way and we got a nice, full, cheerful banquet hall, everybody hearing the story expects us to end with, and they all lived happily ever after. And then comes the end. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The king comes into the banquet hall. He's going to hang out with the guests. Even though many of the people in that room are commoners, the king is friendly, he's gracious. He's going to give them a little of the royal time. And he passes through the crowd and he spots a man not dressed for the occasion. Now, it's fair to assume, friends, that if the king invited people off the street to come to the party, the king also would have provided nice clothing, fancy robes, tuxes and dresses for the guests to wear. You can almost picture the front door. Come on in here, right over here, grab your robe, join the party. But there's one guy who for whatever reason refused to put on a robe for the party. And the king goes up to this guy in his street clothes, in his non-party clothes, and he asks him, why, why didn't you put the robe on for the party? And the man has no answer. This guy seems to have just refused to put on what the king provided. And here's where the story takes a terrifying turn. The king orders the servants to seize that man and to tie him up hand and foot and throw him out of the party, out of the bright lights and sweet candle glow of the party, into the outer darkness. That man was not going to be allowed to celebrate in the king's party if that man was unwilling to accept the clothes the king provided. And the king says, many are called, but few are chosen. And there we have the story. It's beautiful and it's horrifying. It's weird and it's straightforward. Jesus does not give us any word of explanation here, but the Lord expects you and me reading this word inspired by his Holy Spirit in its context. He expects us to get the point and he expects us to learn. So let's do our best to do so. Point number one of three. Do not presume on the patience of God. Do not presume on the patience of God. 
This really takes me mentally to verses 1 through 7. That's the opening part of the parable, right? You remember it? There, there's a party coming. King invites people. People refuse the invitation twice. And then they are going to get crushed. Right? Now, if you didn't have any context to this passage, if you just heard that story out of the middle of nowhere, you might wonder what in the world Jesus is talking about. What's he hinting at here? But if you remember that this is the third parable in a set of three parables, and the first two talked about the rebellion of the nation of Israel as they would not do what God said, I think the meaning of this parable is crystal clear. Jesus is talking about Israel again. And what you got to know here, friends, is that all through the Old Testament of the Bible, God had made a promise. I'm going to send, God says, someone into the world to rescue my children from the judgment that my children deserve. I, we're all glad about that. And God also chose in the Old Testament one family, one nation that would carry that promise that's the nation. That's Israel. And Israel was, as they were going to carry the promised line of God, they were also put in a special relationship with God in which they were supposed to obey the law of God. But also through the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament a couple of times, you know this. How well did Israel obey the law? Not so much. They weren't into that. They prove by their rebellion time and time and time again that no human being on our own will ever do enough to impress God and no human being on our own will ever keep God's commands. We desperately need a Savior. And that's a primary, that's one of the three main purposes of the law. We see the three uses of the law. But one of the key uses of the law of God is to remind you and me how desperately we need to be saved. Well, God in the Old Testament sent prophets to speak to the people of Israel. God sent prophets to say, listen, guys, turn away from your sin or I'm going to let another nation come in here and overrun you. And they responded to those prophets in negative ways. And by the way, the way they responded to the prophets are ways people still respond to the Christian message today. Some people ignored the messages of the prophets. They went on with their daily lives. Remember the people saying, ah, they went back to their work, they went back to their homes, they didn't come to the party. They're not going to be bothered with God's offer of kindness. I got other things I'm interested in right now. By the way, are you one of those people who says, you know, I'm okay with the God stuff in general, but at this stage in my life, I'm not interested? Oh, be careful. Other people got mad at the messengers that brought the word of God to them and they attacked those people and they shamed those people and they killed those people. And by the way, people are doing that today too. Well, Jesus in the parable is telling the Jewish leaders, people of the nation of Israel, you guys as a nation have, reviewed, have refused a gracious and glorious offer of salvation. You have ignored God for your own worldly concerns. You have turned your back on God. You've turned your back on God's messengers. You've attacked some of God's messengers. The people Jesus is talking to are about to clamor to put the very Son of God to death. And verse 7, we see the king sends troops in to destroy the city. The very people Jesus is talking to are 
in about 40 years going to face the destruction that Jesus talked about in verse 7. In 40 years from when Jesus says this, give or take, the temple of Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed by fire at the hands of the Roman army led by General Titus. He promised it and it happened. So no doubt, no doubt, Jesus is right here teaching about the past and even the near future of the nation of Israel that he's looking at. So now you've got to ask yourself this question. That's great. That's neat history lesson, lesson Pastor. What are we supposed to know 2,000 years after it? Right? Isn't that a fair question? What should you learn 2,000 years later? Do not presume on the patience of God. That's what to learn. God is a good God. God is a kindly king. God has made to everyone here an invitation that is as lavish and as welcoming and as glorious and as sweet and as beautiful as was the king's invitation to his son's wedding feast because we have been invited by God to join him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's good stuff. God has told us there is a way to be made right with God. There's a way that you don't have to be an enemy of God, but God can be your father and your friend. And the real question is, when you know God has made a way, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? The great feast is a glorious banquet. It's a celebration. In truth, that, that great feast in the parable, it's a picture of heaven. God made you for a purpose. God made you for life and joy. He offers you life and joy and fulfillment forever with Him. God made you to demonstrate His glory. If God offers you life and joy and fulfillment, here's a question. Will you have it? Will you ignore God's call? Even worse, will you get angry at the message when you hear it? I don't want anything to do with that. Please, friends, do not presume on the kindness of God. God has offered joy forever. But if you continue to fight him, you can see from verse 7, the results of doing that are bad, right? Those who opposed the king in the parable were destroyed. And all who turn their back on God and oppose God in the end will be destroyed too. God is patient with us all. But we must not assume that the patience of God and the second chances will last forever. Turn from sin and be forgiven before it's too late. Point number two. You with me still? Accept God's gracious invitation. Point number two is accept God's gracious invitation. 
I think this really encompasses verses 8 through 10 of the parable. Remember that? The king says, go out on the streets and bring everybody in you can bring in. Bring good people, bring bad people, whatever you get, bring them all in. Rich people, poor people, good people, bad people, old people, young people. Invite everybody to come to the party. And the servants, they do, and the hall is filled. Now, here's what's funny. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? Do you guys like that? Think that sounds neat? What do you think the first century Jew thought of that? It doesn't sound as lovely in their ears as it does to us because, you see, there was a pride in the people of God. There was a pride in the nation of Israel. They liked it that if people wanted to know God, they had to come through them. They liked it that if you wanted to know God, you've got to submit to our culture. But here, what Jesus is telling us is God is about to throw the doors wide open. Gentiles are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. That's probably the bad people and the good people, bad people. By the way, that's us, y'all. And the Jews, guess what? They're welcome too. They're welcome too. But they don't get to be the gatekeepers. They don't get to hold the position of priority. They have to come in the same gracious way that all the rest of us come. Now today, you and I should be incredibly thankful for what this tells us. God has invited into his family all kinds of people. Aren't you glad about that? God will let rich people in. Aren't you glad? You got, it doesn't affect me. <laughs> God will let poor people into his family. How do you feel about that? Yeah, right? Okay. God will let smart people and dumb people into his family. God lets young people and old people, men and women, parents and children, single and married, slaves and masters, rulers and servants, they all get to be in God's family. And no longer does your nation of origin have anything to do with your standing before God. The Lord is concerned with people coming, not saying it has to be of this particular people group. Aren't you glad that that's true? The door was always open to all people of all nations, but it's just wide open now. And as people have said before, all people stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Now, Listen, because I want to urge three thoughts on you during this point. It's nice to have a three-point point, right? This is how preachers get away with extra points. One of them is the point that I gave you, that you should accept God's gracious invitation. Do not hear about this open invitation to come to the Lord. Do not hear God's saying, come to me and you can be forgiven. Do not hear that and ignore it, because ignoring God's call leads to your destruction. Believe in Jesus, turn from your sin, and come, come and become a child of God. You can do that by the grace of God, in the power of God. Now, if you are a child of God, and I assume that most people sitting in a church on a Sunday morning here, like this one, you're probably already a child of God if you're here. By the way, if you're, not, if you're not yet saved or you're not sure, I'm thrilled you're here and you are completely welcome in our family to be with us and hang out with us. We're glad you're here. But most people are saved here this morning. If you are a child of God, here's the second thing that I want to urge with you in this point. 
let this wide open invitation to God's family remind you that in the family of God, there is no such thing as one people group that is better than any other people group. Not one class better than another class. Not one status better than another status. Paul wrote this in Galatians 3, 27 to 29. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, like a robe. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, when it comes to becoming a child of God, there is no distinction in any people group. Now, we remain whatever nationality we are when we get saved, right? Some of you have beautiful little accents that aren't going away, and I'm glad about it. Right? Aren't you? Aren't you glad that we're all different? Your skin color stays the same when you get saved. You don't, you don't turn a different color when you're saved. Uh, we keep our gender when we're saved. If you're a man, you're still a man. You're a woman, still a woman. But here's the thing. We learn to embrace all people from all backgrounds and all nations and all walks of life as our very own family in the Lord. Yeah, I mean, we got different roles to play in the church. We've got different roles to play as men and women in the church. But we are not at all divided from one another when it comes to being children of God. In our culture, you guys know there are animosities between people groups, right? Yeah. Republicans and Democrats don't get along super well. Some people of different skin colors get cranky at each other for different things. Rich people and poor people have their own issues. Listen to me. We as believers must not and we as believers will not allow ourselves to treat one another as anything other than believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are. You look at anybody who's a part of the church, anybody who's a person of faith, you don't say, oh, well, that's a man Christian or a woman Christian. That's a black Christian or a white Christian. That's a rich Christian or a poor Christian. You say, that is my brother. That is my sister in Christ. Third thing. I'll point this out real fast for you. What do you tell the servants to do? Go therefore and bring people in. Does go therefore ring any bells in your ears? I hope it does. He says, go bring people into my feast. Christians, you and I are tasked by God to do the very same thing. We are to go and make disciples. And that means that you, dear friend, Christian friend, need to be praying about how you might help other people in this church to go and declare to everybody around them, everybody around you, that there is a feast of forgiveness and great joy and glory to be found in Christ. Invite people to come. Invite people to be saved. Share the gospel. Share it in your homes with your friends, with your family, with your children. Share it with your co-workers. And in doing that, you can give honor to the Lord who has given you such a great salvation. We get the wedding feast even better than having a feast, though. We get the king. And that's good news. Third point, last point. Be sure you are in Christ. Last point. This is a big one. Be sure 
that you are in Christ. That weird scene that comes at the end of the parable, 11 to 14. King walks in. He finds one guy in the group who refused to put on a wedding garment. And that man is cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a picture, I think, of a person who benefits from the open invitation of God to come join the family. Because there's a lot of people around the world who benefit from the presence of the church and the openness of the church to say, come hang with us. But that person is not forgiven in Christ. This is terrifying, friends, because this is a picture of a person who likes being around the religious community. Do you know anybody like that? But that person is not clothed and in Christ, as we saw in Galatians 3.27. And the destination of that person is to be cast into the outer darkness. And when Jesus talks about the outer darkness, he's talking about hell. Listen to me very soberly here. There are people who will hang around the church. There are people who might even say enough of the right words to become members of the church. But who will not be in heaven. They're going to play the religious game, but they will not yield their lives to the Lord. And those people are known to God. He, he will find them out because he knows. And they will be cast into hell for their sin against God and for their refusal to trust in Jesus and be saved. The point is simple. What do I do with this, Pastor? This is scary. Be sure you're in Christ. Be sure. Listen to me. Do you know? Do you know you're in Christ? Be sure. How? Be sure that you have repented and believed. That's how the Word of God tells us to be saved. What does it mean to repent, you ask? Good morning. <laughs> to repent is to realize that you are a sinner in need of grace. To repent is for you to let go of thinking you are the master of your life. To repent is to let go of living in sin and yielding, giving up everything you are to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To believe is to understand that Jesus is God the Son. Jesus came to earth and died to pay the penalty for all who are ever going to be forgiven. Jesus rose from the grave. He's alive right now. He's not dead right now. Believe that you need forgiveness. Believe that Jesus can and will forgive you. And ask Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me because of what you've done. Declare to Jesus, I surrender everything of who I am to you. Repent, believe, be saved. Now why, why do we see that many are called but few are chosen? Well, the, who gets the command to repent and believe to be saved? Who does that go to? That goes to everybody, friends. 
God commands all people everywhere to repent, Acts 17, 30. But do we believe that every person in the world is going to repent and be saved? No. Not everybody's going to come to God and be forgiven. Even among the people of God, even sitting around the church building, you will find people who like to be here, who like to help people, who just can't get enough of hearing my lovely voice. <laughs> people who like the nice stuff Christians do, they know the potluck's going to be good. But those people, for whatever reason, because of their sin, they will never let go of their lives enough to yield, to bow, to call Jesus Lord. All friends, receive the mercy of God. Why does it say called and chosen, though? Because, y'all, God's not surprised. Nothing happens outside of the absolutely gloriously perfect sovereign will of God. God's sovereign will has never been thwarted, even in the death of the wicked. But human beings are all completely responsible for our actions. Glorious, glorious truth. How do you check yourself to be sure that you're wearing a wedding garment? How do you check yourself to be sure you're in the family of God? Ask yourself, are you believing in Jesus? Do you know Jesus is your only hope? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave? Do you know Jesus is going to return to this earth? Are you repenting? Are you willing to say, even right now, listen to me, are you willing to say right now, Jesus, you're my Lord. Do you understand that Jesus has the right to command every single area of your life? Are you willing to obey? Would you bow down to Jesus as the master of your soul? Friends, these are no small questions, but in the end, they are vital. If you would put on Christ... You have the glory of the wedding feast. You have the glory of the king. You have life. You have joy. You have God. You have forgiveness. But if you fight against the grace of God, if you refuse to bow to the king now, you will bow to the king later, but you'll be lost. You'll be judged. You'll be cast out. Please don't let that be your end. Do not presume on the patience of God. Accept the gracious invitation of God. God chooses all sorts of people, good people, bad people, from all walks of life to be his children. Be sure that you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, thank God. Praise God and tell the world about Jesus. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, you are good and your word is good and your grace is magnificent. And Lord, we are sinners in need of great grace. I always fear, Lord, when, when a message like this is given, all of our people who know that they're saved, there's such a temptation just to check out and say, oh, I know that stuff. He's doing a gospel sermon. God, don't let us ever become bored with the gospel. But I pray that every person in this room, every person in this room, 
will check himself, will check yourself by the power, will check himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, herself by the power of the Holy Spirit, to say, am I really in Christ? Don't let somebody sit in this room unsaved and think that they're saved. And Lord, please don't let somebody sit in this room unsaved and stay that way. But you, by your sovereign power, I would pray that you would choose to save souls. I would pray that you would bring in our hearts heartbroken repentance over sin. Help us not fight you anymore. There's no reward in this life. There's no relationship in this life. There's no, there's no treat in this life worth hell. Help us, God, to repent, believe, and be saved. And help the rest of us to take the gospel to the nation and celebrate the glories of being your children. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing our God's praise.